Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1130. Romans 6. I guess if we stay in Romans 6 long enough, the pew Bibles will all open up automatically to that place, right? Just kind of pick it up and hold it and it'll fall open. Romans 6. <laughs> Let me uh, just begin this morning by asking you a question. We're gonna, I'm calling this a Romans quiz, okay? Time for a Romans quiz. How many commands, how many commands has Paul given us so far in the first five and a half chapters of Romans? What do you think? Three? Five? More than ten? The answer is zero. Zero. No commands to this point in this whole epistle until today. We arrive this morning at the first command in this whole great epistle. It's needless to say there's a change happening before our eyes this morning. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law. But under grace, we've been saying that in this section, these 14 verses that Paul outlines for us seven essential truths that we must understand, believe and act upon so that we will be able to break the grip of sin in our lives. Just reviewing for you, you have your handout. And by the way, the handout was prepared before the sermon manuscript, so we're not going to get anywhere near 
through as far as the handout shows, okay? So don't worry. But anyway, the first truth there in the handout, verses 1 and 2, you have died to sin. Secondly, verses 3 and 5, you've been united with Christ. Third, verses 6 and 7, you have been delivered from sin's power. That was last week. And again last week, verses 8 through 10, your emancipation is permanent. So we arrive here now at the fifth truth. The fifth truth in verse 11, you must recognize reality. You must recognize reality. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying both here in verse 11 and what follows in verses 12 and 13 are built upon what he has communicated to us in verses 1 through 10. Verse 11 is the turning point in his argument here. It is indeed the first command in this whole epistle. And what Paul is about to say is built upon what he has gone before, that is the reality of the death of Christ ending for all time, Jesus' relationship to sin. Christ now lives forever and irreversibly in unbroken fellowship with God the Father. And by virtue of our union with Him, we participate in that reality too. That's Paul's point. We are, and look at verse 11, in Christ Jesus. We are in union with Christ Jesus. A union entered by faith. And by virtue of that union, we receive the benefit of what Christ has done. Take a moment, if you will, and think with me. Think about the rich and varied metaphors the Scripture uses to describe the change that has occurred in the life of a believer. John chapter 3, verse 3. We are born again. Born again. Colossians 1.13, we are delivered from one kingdom and transferred to another. Colossians 1.12, we have moved from darkness to light. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, we have received a heart transplant, a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, we are saints, no longer sinners. Romans 8, 14, we are sons of God, not children of Satan. Romans 5, 12 through 21, we are now in Christ Jesus, no longer in Adam. Notice the contrast. It is so vivid. It is so dramatic. It is so stark. It is from one to another. It is permanent. It is irreversible. It is in union with Christ. Yet here's the rub. Here's the rub. In spite of these powerful and contrasting images, we know in our heart of hearts that sin continues to plague us. Isn't that true? Deep down inside, we still feel its contamination. It's still very much with me and with you. So how does this work? 
If it's that dramatic, that vivid, from one to another, darkness to light, a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, being born again, if it's that dramatic, that vivid, how come sin is still so much a part of me? There are times, I will confess to you, when I long for glory. Oh, do I want to go and be with the Lord. I am so tired of the fight. So tired of being drugged down over and over again with the same sin. But God has revealed to us in this section the means by which I can overcome it. And the means by which you can overcome it. It is not a hopeless thing if we will do it God's way. My problem, your problem is so often we don't want to do it God's way. Truth be told, often we kind of like our sin. We kind of like it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. This morning and in next week, we will see how God has provided the way of escape. If we will but take it. If we will but take it. It begins here in verse 11. With this amazing truth, you must recognize reality. Paul says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Legizomai is the Greek verb. It's a rich word. It's used all over the New Testament and translated in a number of different ways. And just in Romans alone, it's used repeatedly. In verse 26 of chapter 2, it's translated there to regard, to regard. Chapter 4 and verse 4, it's translated to reckon. These are all NASB translations, by the way. To reckon. Chapter 6, verse 11, to consider. Chapter 2, verse 3, to think or to suppose something. Chapter 3, verse 28, to maintain something. The idea is to think upon or to reflect upon. The, the word communicates a, a deliberate and a sober judgment. Not pretending something is true. It doesn't refer to just some wishful thinking, some ideal. It refers to a reality. It is very much a word rooted in reality, but it is a word that's talking about the mind. And from the mind to the heart. This verse 11 is a powerful verse. It is a very powerful verse. And the power of this verse, beloved, lies in its grammar. It lies in its grammar. And that makes it somewhat uh, laughable in a sense because you are looking at somebody who, um, whose grammar is not very strong, but it is light years ahead of what it once was. As a boy in school, I had no use for English grammar and did everything I could to avoid it to my own detriment later in life having to take bonehead English in seminary before I could even begin to think about Greek or Hebrew. 
But the grammar here is worth taking the time to go through with you, okay? Some of you, this is very elementary stuff, you English teachers out there. For others, this might be a little more radical, but hang with me, okay? I'll try to simplify it down to a level that even I can understand it. Hopefully you will too. This verse is in the imperative mood. The imperative mood. What in the world does that mean? Greek verbs have what's called tense voice and mood. Tense voice and mood. Okay? Tense shows the kind of action. The verb. Continuous action. Completed action. Future action. The voice shows of the verb shows how the subject relates to the action. That is, the subject causes the action. The action is caused to the subject. The subject causes the action and is the recipient of the action that is caused by the verb. That's voice. And then we arrive at what's called mood. Mood. That shows how the action of the verb is related to reality from the speaker's point of view. How does this relate to reality from the speaker's point of view? It is a certainty, it is a command to be obeyed, or it is a probability that something should happen or may happen. Indicative, imperative, subjunctive for you English types. Okay? What we have here in verse 11, and this is the key to it all, is that we have an imperative verb. Remember I started, I asked you the quiz, how many commands in Romans for the first five and a half chapters? Answer, zero. No imperative verbs. This is the first one. Prior to this, what we've had is indicative verbs. Indicative verbs. That is a verb that declares a certainty of something. So up to this point, all that has happened is that facts have been declared. The indicative mood. It's a statement of reality. So the first five and a half chapters, what we've had are basically statements of reality. Let me illustrate this difference here between the indicative and the imperative. Okay, so we're going from the indicative, which is what's gone on before, to the imperative beginning today. Ephesians chapter five, verse 23. We have an indicative verb used there. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That is an indicative verb. It's a statement of reality. It's not a command to husbands to become the head of your wife. It is a statement of reality. Husbands, you are the head of your your wife just as Christ is the head of the church. You understand? That's an indicative verb. It's a statement of reality. The imperative verb is a... A verb that speaks about volition or will. It's a verb that tells us to do something or stop doing something. And so it is typically uh, um, formed as a command or an exhortation. For example, Hebrews or uh, Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty five, we have an imperative verb. And it says, husbands, love your wives. That is an imperative verb. It is a command verb. The indicative, the statement of reality or fact is that the husband is the head of the wife. The imperative verb is that husbands love your wives. Now, the cool thing is that the imperative is built on the indicative. 
The imperative, the command, the exhortation is always built on the indicative. That is, what we are told to do, exhorted to do, is always based upon the fact or reality of what is. The Bible always, always builds the imperative on the reality of the indicative. That's what's going on here in verse 11. That's what's going on here in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. The imperative is built upon the indicative that has gone before. The command is built upon the facts, the reality that has been previously explained for the last five and a half chapters. Just hang on to that point of grammar for a minute. Beyond that, the, the construction of this verse, which, by the way, the uh, New American Standard here, uh, I believe, under-translates, this is a place where the King James or the English Standard Version does a better job, in my opinion, of translating this verse. They, the, the New American Standard overlooks a pronoun here in this verse, the pronoun you. Literally, what this verse says is even so you consider yourselves. You consider yourselves to be dead to sin. I only point that out to you because it, it, it gives emphasis. It gives tremendous emphasis. This is the first place where the imperative verb appears, where the command appears, where the exhortation appears. And grammatically, because of the additional standalone pronoun, it is screaming at you from the text to do something. You do it. Third point of grammar. This is a present tense verb, a present tense verb. What that means is that there is an ongoing action associated with this verb. This is not a one time thing to do. Even so, you yourselves consider yourself at some point in time in the past to be dead to sin. No, what he's saying is even so, you yourselves constantly consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Constantly consider yourself to be dead to sin. What he's talking about here is it's something where to believe is true. He's talking about faith. He's talking about faith. Remember, I said there are seven essential truths here that we have to understand, believe, and then act upon. So he is talking here about belief. Second time, by the way, in this whole section where this concept arises. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. This process of sanctification is a faith-based process. It requires the exercise of biblical faith just like justification did. We are not saved by grace and sanctified by struggle. It is a faith-based proposition all the way through, resting upon the final work of Christ. So what Paul is saying to the church at Rome and by extension to us is that we are to constantly recognize the reality of what and who we are in Jesus Christ and believe it. We are to believe what God's Word says about us is true. Even so, you constantly consider yourself to be dead 
to sin. Because God's Word says you are. It says you are. And that you are alive to God in Christ. This whole concept, by the way, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but you can jot it down. 1 Peter 2.24. You get the same basic instruction. This is the essence, by the way, of biblical faith. The essence of biblical faith is to conclude to be true what God says is true. Let God be found true and every man, what? Be found a liar. Biblical faith is to conclude to be true what God says is true. And God has said certain things are true of us. Therefore, we are to believe them. We are to believe them. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this faith demonstrates itself in the reality of action, and you can see that in verses 12 and 13. We're not going to have time to unpack all of it this morning. But it's not just something, well, I believe it in my heart and it ends there. No, you believe it in your heart and it comes out through your hands. So there is action involved. But it begins first with a settled conviction in your heart that you believe something is true about yourself because God said it is true. Regardless of the contrary evidence. Paul is challenging us here to become what we really are. To become what we really are. He has said to us, since we have died to sin and its mastery over our lives has been nullified, verse 6, right? Rendered ineffective. We are therefore to base our lives on that truth and live out our days from that perspective. We are to reorder our lives by faith based upon the indicative section, the indicative verbs, the statements of reality that have gone on now for the last year and a half. Everything we've been saying up until now is the foundation upon which to now build the Christian life and the activities therein. Now, that's a problem for many of us because we just want to jump into the how do I do it stuff. Just tell me what to do. How do I do it? What laws do I keep? What things do I do? What do I avoid? Give me the cookbook. I'll follow the recipe. This is not how it works. It's not how it works. We must understand reality and then believe it to be true because God has said it is true and then begin to act in accordance with that reality. Any other attempt at sanctification, growing in holiness, is bound and destined to failure. You will not grow in the likeness of Christ. You will not be able to break the grip of sin in your life if you do it any other way but the way God has said to do it. There is only one way. There is only one way of salvation. There is only one way of sanctification. It is God's way. Now, Let's just keep talking about this verse 11. We're not called here to pretend that our old nature has died. It's not calling on us to do that. And you and I know perfectly well that it hasn't. 
So he's not calling on us. This is not a verse about pretending something. This is not mind games. Okay? When I was an unbeliever, I was, uh, um, make this short, I, I was uh, on my way into the United States Marine Corps. I was going to be an officer in the Marine Corps. And I had an accident playing baseball, and I was hit in the eye with a baseball, which permanently damaged vision in one eye and knocked me out of the officer training program. I wanted more than anything else in my life to be an officer in the United States Marine Corps. And so for a whole summer on a little tape loop, okay, whether it was reel-to-reel tape recorders for people who are fossils like me, you remember those. I recorded a little message on a loop of tape that said, your eye will get well, your eye will get well, your eye will get well. And I would play that tape message over and over. You know, it was on a loop, so it just kept playing and playing and playing. And for hours, every day, I would have headphones and I would listen to this message because I wanted so much for my eye to heal. And I thought if I could just convince myself that it would happen, that it would somehow happen. Now, that was stupid. It didn't happen. Okay, colossal waste of time. We're not talking about that here. We're not talking about pretending something is true and just saying it over and over and over again enough times till somehow you convince yourself it is true. We're called to recognize the reality that our old self, that is our old unregenerate life that was lived in union with Adam has been executed. Volume one of our life, as we said, life before Christ ended... With an execution. That was the end of volume one. Volume two opens with a resurrection in union with Jesus Christ. That is reality if you know him today personally with saving faith. That's not wishful thinking. That is reality. Therefore, the mastery of sin over you has been done away with. Katargeo, remember from last week? Rendered inoperative or nullified. Its mastery over you has been broken. You are no longer a slave to sin. That is the indicative verb. That is the statement of reality. Now you are called upon to believe it is true. Therefore, the very idea of responding positively to sin's invitation should strike you as abhorrent. Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Paul's saying, are you crazy? No. You have died to sin in union with Jesus Christ. Believe it. Believe it. When you choose to sin, when I choose to sin, it is as if we go to the backyard and dig up a dead body and bring it into the dining room and sit it at the table with us and enjoy its fellowship. It's crazy. You must recognize this reality by faith, by faith. That takes you to the sixth, which I will venture into. The sixth truth is in verse 12. You must resist sin's cravings. You must 
resist sin's cravings. What does it mean to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? What does that look like? How do I do it? I mean, I've, I've been called to do this. Verse 11. I've been called to do it, but what does it look like? How do you do it? I'm glad you answered that question or asked that question because Paul wants to answer it for you. Verse 12. Verse 12 begins with a therefore. You see it? The first principle of hermeneutics is if there is a therefore, then you ask yourself, what is it? Therefore. Okay? And it is therefore to direct you back to something. It directs you back to verse 11. Because of what has been said to the believers in verse 11, therefore they are to do the following. This is the place where Paul moves from belief to action. Okay, I said that earlier. He moves from belief here to action. Seven truths. Seven truths. We have to understand. Help me. Believe. Act upon. You got it? Understand. Believe, act upon. This is how it works. If you miss any of the steps, it doesn't work. Okay, you must first believe. Or, excuse me, you first understand. Thank you. You must first understand. Then you believe, and then you act. So now we are moving to activity, action. This is where faith becomes sight. This is where faith becomes sight. Paul is urging us on the basis of of verses 1 through 10 to to constantly consider yourself dead to be sin. Excuse me, dead to sin. Verse 11, he now commands us to make it our practice not to let sin hold sway over us, rule over us. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign or rule in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Okay, therefore, because of what's gone before, therefore, don't do this. Now, what does he mean specifically by mortal bodies? Mortal bodies. What does he mean by this? Well, let's just look at a verse here again. You see the adjective mortal. Okay, so we've got the adjective mortal, which speaks of our mortality. It speaks of our humanness, our Okay, our physicalness. Notice also down in um, in uh, a later part of the verse, he talks about lusts or passions. And then finally, in verse 13, he talks about our members, the members of your body. Do you see that? So I think based on the adjective mortal, the, the reference to lusts or passions and the reference to our to our members, I think he is specifically referring here to our physical bodies. Okay, not everybody agrees with that, but that's how I understand it. There's a reference to our physical bodies. And so what he is saying is, do not let sin rule or reign in your physical body that you should obey its lusts. The battle is a spiritual one, but the battleground is the body. The battleground is the body. It is through our bodies that our physical lusts Appetites and desires of the mind come to express themselves. 
James chapter one, verse 14 says it this way. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Notice, by the way, that sin is personified here by Paul as a sovereign ruler. Do you see that? Do not let sin reign or rule over you. Paul personifies sin. He, he, he treats it as if it were an individual, a personage, a, a ruler. A ruler that would, that would make us obey the cravings of our bodies. Bodies destined for death. But, we have died in union with Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? And that the reign of sin has been severed, terminated. Over us, executed. It no longer has the authority to enforce its demands. It cannot make you sin any longer. It does not rule over you. That is the indicative. Now the imperative. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. The Lord of the Rings trilogy was a pretty well-known series of movies, right? Major blockbusters. In one of those uh, movies, in fact, it was the first movie, I believe, there uh, down in the, the mines where the, whatever they were, what were those people? Dwarfs, where the dwarfs were digging. They dug up a Balrog, I think that's what it's called. You remember this? The demon from the abyss? And there on a little stone bridge stood Gandalf. Somebody give me some encouragement here. Okay, because if you don't, I'm not going to try this. But you remember it was coming after them and there stood Gandalf, right? And what did he say? You shall not pass. How was that? All right. That's verse 12. That's what verse 12 is all about. It is to resist the cravings. To say, you do not rule me anymore. You shall not rule me anymore. I know. If I could keep him here to 1230, I'd do it. But I don't think I have any time in the bank. You know what? I'm just going to hang on to it. I got a lot more I need to say okay, from this verse. But I'm going to hang on to it now. I don't want to rush through it. Let's just review where we are. Okay? Let's just review it and see if we can drive it home. We have been looking at statements of reality, verses 1 through 10. Actually, all that leading up to 1 through 10. But with regard here... In the context, 1 through 10, statements of reality. Okay? Death in union with Jesus Christ. Resurrection to the newness of life in union with Jesus Christ. Because of that, the mastery of sin, because we are no longer of the old realm, we are no longer the unregenerate, we are no longer in union with, with Adam, we have now been transferred into the kingdom of His precious Son, we are now in union with Jesus Christ, 
and we have participated in his death, burial and resurrection to the newness of life, a life in which goes on forever, a life in which Jesus can never, ever, ever return to the old world. Sin no longer has power over him. Death no longer has power over him. The life that he lives, he lives to God the Father eternally. You got all that? Why didn't I say that? Why did it take me three weeks to say that before? Okay? That's reality. And so, believe it. Verse 11, believe it. Not just once a long time ago. Every single moment of every single day. Preach the Gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ and that sin no longer has unhindered reign over you. Therefore, verse 12, resist its cravings. Tell it. You cannot make me do this. I do not have to do this. I am not a slave any longer. I have hope. I have hope. And my hope is that there is no temptation that has overtaken me, but such is common to man. And God has provided the way of escape. I don't have to fall to this. I don't have to give in. I don't. And I won't. You see it? I won't. Something comes on the TV, it tempts me towards lust, I will turn it off. I will turn it off because I can. Because I can. When a thought flashes through my mind that is drawing me into sin, and I know it's there, it comes, they come all the time. I don't have to give in to it. I won't give in to it. Tell it to be gone. And I will think godly thoughts. I will draw from the well of my soul the reality of who God is that I have poured in there as I have poured over His Word. I'll flush it away. I will live like who I really am. I'm not going to live like that anymore. I don't have irons on my legs anymore. I'm not a pig. I may fall in the mud. But I'm not a pig. I don't live there anymore. I will get back out by the grace of God. I will cling to the reality. I will call out to God to save me. I will, I will turn and repent of my sin and I will call out to Christ and say, Christ, you have forgiven me. It strengthened me now to do what is right. And I'll do it. And when I fall, I will confess my sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I will go on again. You see it? This is where it's at. The Christian world is full of self-help books. This is a whole other sermon. Nothing's here in the notes. It's just full of self-help books. Go to the Christian bookstore and there's like, I don't even know how many there are. They're all over the place. Nothing but pop psychology with a few Bible verses band-aided onto it. It is garbage. It will never help you to gain victory over your sin. You want victory over your sin? You do it God's way. Okay, you do it God's way. Cool. All right. Enough of that.
before I use up all my time. Come on up here. This is the second part of the same sermon, by the way. This stuff's all related. I mean, what we're about to do is just is related. It's related here. Genesis 12, God appeared to Abraham and made a covenant with him. Called the Abrahamic covenant. It's a foundational covenant, covenant of redemption. All flows from the Abrahamic covenant. God renews that covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. He renews and expands. God also renews that covenant with the offspring of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This, if you will, is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. We are in covenant with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, His Son. We are members of the what covenant? It's called the New Covenant, right? We read all about that earlier in Hebrews 9. We're not part of the Old Covenant. We are in the New Covenant. And so we have been given this ceremony, this picture, to remind us that we are in the New Covenant. And in a sense, we renew that covenant with God through this ceremony. I mean, Paul says is do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay, in remembrance of me. So communion is about remembering something. It's about remembering something. What is it that we're supposed to remember? Well, there are many things, but the first and foremost thing we are to remember is that we are in union with Jesus Christ. Once we were far off, we were aliens, we were strangers, we were separated from the covenants and promises of God, right? But now, Paul says, through Jesus Christ, we have been brought near. We have been brought into the covenant. We are in union with Jesus Christ. So when we take these things, we are remembering we are in union with Christ. Now, it's not just me and Jesus. You know, me and Jesus, we got this thing. It's just, you know, I don't need to go to church. It's just me and Jesus, which is totally Foreign to the New Testament. We are a union with Jesus Christ and in union with each other. You cannot be in union with Jesus Christ without being in union with each other. And you cannot be in union with each other without being in union with Jesus Christ. It goes together. One presupposes the other. This, by the way, is an indicative ceremony. Not an imperative. This is not a ceremony that says, be in union with Jesus Christ. This is not an evangelistic um, ceremony. This is a ceremony that says, you are in in union with Jesus Christ. Remember it. Remember it. Prior to taking the elements, Paul says we're to examine ourselves. Isn't that right? Examine your heart. Okay? Examine it for what? Examine it for what? Well, in the context of 1 Corinthians, it's to examine it as to how you are relating to the local body of Christ in which you are in union. 
And if by your attitudes and behaviors you are lying about reality, that is that you are, you are mocking the reality of your union by living as if you're not in union with each other, then Paul says, you better be careful about taking this. He says to the Corinthians, some of them are dead because of it. God is very serious about this. This is not optional. You, if you have by faith embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in union today with Him and with me and everyone else in here who has by faith uh, embraced Christ. And so if by your lifestyle you are making a mockery of the reality, God says through the Apostle Paul, look out. Don't touch these things. They're poison to you. Could kill you. Let a man examine himself. And then let him eat. It's not just about me and God. If there is sin in my life, I need to confess it. Because I need to be made right with God. But you see, it's beyond that. It's bigger than that. If there is sin in my life that is blocking fellowship between me and God, it is also splattering all over the rest of you. Because we are in union together. My sin affects you. Maybe you can't see it right away, but it affects you. And it will eventually spew out and splatter on all of you. And yours on me. So we are to confess our sin. And if need be, we need to confess it one to another. There is bitterness in your heart this morning. You are to confess it before you take these elements. If there are things in your life that make a mockery about your union with Christ, you need to confess it. Or don't touch it. It's dangerous. We're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about perfection. I said it some time ago, we don't eat this, we don't wash our hands in order to, uh, we don't eat in order to wash our hands. We wash our hands before we eat. Okay? We don't take this meal in order to confess our sin. We confess our sin in order to take the meal. You understand that? Let's pray. God, our Father, we stand amazed at the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and the incredible reality that that is. That upon His cross turns all of the universe, all of history. He is the focal point. It is by His death, burial, and resurrection that sin was destroyed. The battle won. The kingdom is coming. Your reign and your rule as it is in heaven will be here upon this earth. That you have taken your enemies and made them your friends. We rejoice in what you have done. We thank the Lord Jesus Christ for His love gift to us. We confess our sin. And Lord, as we take these elements and wait upon others to receive them as well, we pray that Your Spirit would search our hearts and reveal to us any barrier that needs to be dealt with. That we might confess it and then with a clean and free conscience partake of this symbol which represents and declares the unity with Christ that we have. 
In Jesus' most glorious name we pray. Amen.
I hope you can take this with great joy in your heart. That in these very simple things, God has painted an incredible picture of what Christ has done in you. Let's eat together. We are the family of God, and let's sing together hymn number 282, 282 as we close. Let us stand together and sing.